pray before we look into the Word. Father, we need for you to speak to us this afternoon. Lord, we cannot live by the food that we have just eaten alone, nor any meals really, but, but by the words that come out of your mouth. So speak to us this afternoon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What does a church with a timid pastor need? A church who is being overrun by false teachers who are teaching a false gospel and misapplying the truth of the gospel. A church that is overrun by false teachers, careless Christians, and a timid pastor needs motivation to live out the gospel for the sake of sound doctrine, corporate integrity, and selfless service. I want to study through 1 Timothy with you tonight or this afternoon and then for the next 20 Sunday nights that we are together. Uh, so if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles there. We're just going to do a survey of the book and also look at the first couple verses of the text as well. So let's look at the first verse because the first thing that we see is that First Timothy is a letter from Paul. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. So Paul's writing this letter um, written on his fourth missionary journey, likely, um, A.D. 62 through 64. Notice that Paul's speaking here on behalf of God. He says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God. So what he's about to say is important. It's, it, there's some conflict going on in the churches we're going to see. Timothy needs to address these issues that are going on. And Paul wants to say, this is not just my opinion. I'm speaking as an apostle, a representative of Christ Jesus himself and the commandments of God. So that's going to be important later. Now, in Paul's previous missionary journey, his third missionary journey, you remember the one where it ended in Jerusalem. He was planning to go there because he wanted the gospel to go and, and take root in Jerusalem and spread from there. And uh, instead, he ended up in a Roman prison awaiting trial to, to see the emperor uh, about his situation. Well, after that imprisonment, he was able to get out. So if you read through all the way to the end of Acts, that's that imprisonment that he's, he's talking about there. And he says that the gospel still is spreading unhindered, but after that, he doesn't die immediately. He actually gets out of prison, and um, he spends two years, uh, he spends uh, several years traveling around to various churches to see how they were doing. And one of the churches that he was really concerned about is this church here that's being written about in 1 Timothy, and that is the church at Ephesus. Paul was there when Ephesus had first started. He, he may not have started it himself. It very likely could have been um, Aquila and Priscilla that had gone before him. Then Paul came around later in his infancy and, and basically strengthened, strengthened the church, established leaders. When he left, um, he wanted to make sure that more churches were being planted, but he left the church with established leaders. And so after his third missionary journey, after his imprisonment in, uh, and, and before his imprisonment in Rome, he stopped and talked to the Ephesian elders. And he said, watch out because there's going to come into you, Acts chapter 20, there are going to come in, even from your own midst, savage wolves who will not spare the flock. You need to watch out for them. This is that same church. He's talking to those elders in Acts 20 uh, that, that he's talking about here in this, this passage as well. He, he's very concerned about this church, so he writes this letter to Timothy to help strengthen it and, and, um, and guard it against the uh, d dangerous 
philosophy that was being taught. So this is a letter from Paul, and then in verse 2 we see that it's a letter to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy was a, a faithful friend of Paul. In the time between uh, Paul's pre-prison visit to Ephesus and his post-prison visit to Ephesus, apparently some false teaching had risen up within the church. And so Timothy was not the pastor at the time that the heresy was rising up. Instead, Timothy was a traveling companion of Paul, and he witnessed it himself. And Paul said, Timothy, stay behind. That's what we're going to see when we get into verse 3 and following. You need to stay behind, and I'm going to go on to Macedonia. So as I go, you need to stay behind and strengthen this church. And so this letter is written to encourage this timid pastor, this younger pastor, probably in his early 40s or something, um, and, and to to encourage him to stand up against this false teaching. Paul um, was, was uh, surprised at the, the struggle that they had with false doctrine, the chaotic church services, and the self-serving congregation. And so uh, when he concludes his visit there, he leaves Timothy to get the church back on the right track. And so Timothy is a direct recipient Okay, as we talked about Sunday school, we're reading someone else's mail. This is mail directed at Timothy primarily. But the fact that this letter is preserved and that we're still reading it, that it's part of the New Testament canon, tells us something, doesn't it? That it was meant to be read by more than just Timothy. In fact, it seems like Timothy allowed the whole church to read it. And, since we're reading it now, uh, Paul, the Holy Spirit, in fact, meant for us to read it as well. Now, who is Timothy? Timothy had... Um, he was effectively a Samaritan, right? His, he, he was the son of a Jewish Christian mother and an unbelieving Gentile father, according to Acts chapter 16. And from the time he was young, he was influenced by his Christian mother and grandma, grandmother, according to the Apostle Paul. It seems like Paul led him to Christ, according to Acts 16, because, and, and then notice here in chapter 1, verse 2, he calls him my true child in the faith. So it sounds like Paul led Timothy to Christ, even though he was influenced by his mother and grandmother, heard these great things about God and, and, the, and the Bible. Um, Timothy very likely was led to Christ by Paul himself. And so the first encounter that Timothy had with Paul, I think, would have been unforgettable. Because in Acts chapter 14, Timothy, Timothy um, probably met him when Timothy was in Lystra. That's where Timothy was from, when Paul was in Lystra, I should say, because that's where Timothy was from. And if you remember your history of the, of the establishment of the churches there in Acts, you remember that Paul went into Lystra and was not received very well. What did the townspeople do to him? Right? They, they stoned him and left him for dead. They dragged him outside the city and left him for dead. And so... In other words, they thought he was dead. They thought he was dead. He was probably unconscious, laying there with bruises and blood all over him. And what did Paul do when he came to? He went right back into the city and started preaching again. You think that would have left a mark at all on Timothy? You think Timothy would have remembered that story at all? Maybe might have come to mind a time or two, right? He, he knew the commitment that Paul had to this gospel that he once uh, opposed. And now he's standing up for it and willing to, to incur great um, pain and, and uh, punishment because of it. And so 
uh, very likely, and again, I'm kind of filling in between the lines here, but very likely that's where Timothy first saw Paul, and, and perhaps that played into his own salvation. Well, after getting saved, Paul discipled him and brought him along with him in his travels, and one of the ways that um, people disciple younger Christians is they just let them be a part of their life. You know, just come and join with me as I go to this place or that, and and, um, and uh, we'll talk about spiritual things, and you can watch some of these things unfold yourself. And um, so here, Timothy's basically being commissioned by Paul to to strengthen this church here in Ephesus. Chapters 1 through 2, um, it's a summary. It's a letter about sound teaching. And Paul is wanting to show Timothy that the gospel motivates the church to demand sound teaching. After the opening greeting, Paul gets down to business. He doesn't start with the thanksgiving, thankful for these people. He doesn't start with any of that. He just goes right into the necessity for doctrinal precision. You know, we might like to move on to all the fluffy stuff, you know, love and and care and and people's concerns and and that sort of thing. But Paul starts with doctrine. Let's make sure that our doctrine is right because our practice will not be right if our doctrine is not right. All of our practices are are flow out of what we believe. Everything that we do flows out from what we believe. So Paul starts with that. And he's saying, in this church there are false teachers who have risen up within the church and they are not motivated by what they ought to be. And here's how you can tell if they're real or not. Their motivation, their, the result of their teaching is not love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Instead, it's division and strife. And that's one of the ways you can tell what true doctrine is, its result. In verses 12 to 17, Paul gives the basis for sound teaching, the grace of God and salvation. He's saying, listen, you're not coming in here, Timothy, just like I am not with this air of superiority, like, look at me, look who I am, saying, no, I am the greatest of sinners. God saved me. This is who I am. I'm one who's saved by grace. Timothy, this is you. So he's trying to establish for Timothy kind of a, a leadership style. And then in verses 18 through 21, he shows the necessity of vigilance in sound teaching. Let's see if I got, oh, I guess I do have these subpoints for you there, if you want them. Um, vigilance in sound teaching. Notice verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and good conscience, which have which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So, Timothy, fight the good fight. Um, and the way that you're going to do that here in Ephesus is by standing up to these false teachers and by devoting yourself to to being an example for for the people who are, are following. As a teacher, you have to make sure that you have a, a, a solid life, that you're committed to God in every aspect of life. So vigilance in, in activity. Let me leave those up there for a little longer if you need those. The next one is the necessity of corporate pray, prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. The necessity of corporate prayer. Paul gives an example of how Timothy ought to pray himself, and, and he says that there must be sound teaching with regard to prayer because believers ought to pray for peace because God is working to make Jesus known in the world and, and this peace is conducive with the spread of the gospel. So when you pray about your leaders, civil leaders, pray for peace. Pray that there is peace. Yes, we can say, oh, well, 
you know, if there were persecution, then the church is going to spread and grow even more and more. Well, that's possible, and God definitely works through that. But Paul actually prays for peace and says peace is conducive for the spread of the gospel as well. So let's, let's pray for that. And in fact, that's what the gospel ultimately does when it, when it reaches into people and it changes the whole people group. It actually brings peace, not, not conflict. Now, initially there's conflict, but you understand what I'm saying. So, necessity of doctrinal precision, the basis for sound teaching, grace of God, necessity of vigilance, then the necessity of corporate prayer, and then in verses 9 through 15, the necessity of church order. At the end of chapter 2, there were some arrogant women who were drawing attention to themselves with fancy clothes and their public teaching in church. And, and so, regarding their clothes, Paul commends them uh, not to be known for what they look like, uh, but rather that they be known for their good works. And then with regard to the creation order, uh, Paul says you're not supposed to teach. Okay? It's not about you women getting first place or getting your, your face time in front of the, the congregation. So it's not about your, your arrogance. And then he, he uses the creation order to prove that point. So if you want to know more about that, I'll have to wait till we get there. And there should be schedule. Yeah, when is that? That's February 19th. All right, so we'll we'll get to that at that time. Chapter three is uh, shows us that it's a letter about corporate integrity and church order. That the gospel not not only motivates our church to demand sound teaching, but it also motivates the church to demand corporate integrity and church order. So first, the integrity of leaders in chapter three, verses one through fifteen, this famous list of qualifications for the pastor and then the deacons. Uh, in verses 9 through 15, uh, verses 8 through 15, excuse me. That, that Timothy should not be looking to appoint leaders who have great charisma or an alpha dog mentality. That's not the thing he needs to be looking for. That's fine if they have it, but, but the main thing that they need to be looking for, he needs to be looking for, and the church needs to be looking for, is that these leaders, the pastor and the deacons, are men of integrity. They are above reproach. That's the, the phrase that's committed, or that's repeated over and over again. That that they ought to be known for their godly relationships. That, that they ought to be known for their godliness in their homes as well as in the church. Like we wouldn't expect them to all of a sudden do these great and godly acts in the church if they're ungodly at home, right? So we want to see people who are consistent without, within their lives. They need to be consistent also in how they treat their non-Christian colleagues, right? That they, they, are, um, they have a good reputation, verse 7 says, with those outside the church. That is speaking specifically of the pastor. But um, that, that gives a good indication as to how the affairs of the church are going to be handled. right? If, if we kind of blow up and we're angry all the time at home or at work or in our neighborhood, and then we come to church and we're just kind of um, mellow and really calm, and, and well, that doesn't say much about our, our corporate integrity. So it starts with the leaders. And, and so there's some uh, lots of application that we can think about for our church there. Secondly, a reminder about the necessity of church order in verses 14 to 16. Paul's main goal here is to leave Timothy so that he can set things in order. So he says that in verse um, verse 15, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So there's application for all of us. It's not just for Timothy as a pastor saying, okay, here's what you need to do, Timothy. He's like, here's how you need to teach the people how they ought to conduct themselves in the house of God. And so this letter has a lot to say about that because chaos in the church 
betrays our Christian testimony and the fact that God is a God of order. So we should have some order in the church. It's also a letter about selfless service in chapters 4 through 6. The gospel motivates me to demand sound teaching. It also demands that we have corporate integrity. And then thirdly, the gospel motivates the church to selfless service. The first kind of service is correcting false teachers. That's what chapter 4 is all about. That there are false teachers who come up here again in chapter 4. We first saw them in chapter 1, verse 3. Here we find out a little bit more about them, that they have these weird views about celibacy and food laws. They're making sure that people who are in a leadership position are not married and that they're eating the right kinds of food. Paul's like, no, 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 no. That's not the standard that we're looking for for leadership. And he talks about, he goes back to Genesis and shows some of these principles that are have abiding principles in the creation order and shows how that plays into food and marriage. And then he goes on to say that that leaders are to be identified by their godliness in verses 6 through 10 and then their commitment to the word in verses 11 to 16, not by their greed. Then the first part of chapter 5 is about the service of caring for widows, that the church has a responsibility to care for widows, but then there's this one important qualification, but not all widows, and we'll get to that when we get there, but basically he's saying that there are actually some assertive women probably the same ones from the end of chapter 2, who were taking advantage of the church. right? They had lost their husbands in death, and the church felt the responsibility to care for them, and so they financed these ladies with the church's money. But in response, the widows here in chapter 5 were spending all their time being gossips and busybodies. And Paul's saying, if that's the case, then stop supporting them. Okay, That's not the purpose of what they do. So he says, if you're young, you widows, if you're young, tell them to this to Timothy, tell these young widows that they need to get remarried and take care of themselves. In other words, get busy. If they're over 60, and this is the qualification that he put on here, then they can be on the list of widows, but if they have a family or if they've been unfaithful to the church, then, then don't put them on the list of, of widows to care for. So he puts all these qualifications. You know, we, we want to um, certainly... Uh, be sensitive here in, in how we care for the widows in our church as well. But, but but it's interesting that Paul says, care for widows, but not all of them. You know, Make sure that they're living up to the godly standards that are expected of every church member, and make sure that you know that their family is also helping to take care of them. So we'll, we'll explore that when we get to chapter 5. And then at the end of chapter 5, the service of pastors and sinning brothers. Verses 17 to 25. Paul commands Timothy here to teach the church about paying their pastor. And then in verse 19, to be careful about how they rebuke their pastor. That's what the word elder there means. It's not, you know, when we see elder in the Bible, uh, especially in the New Testament, we're talking about pastors. We're not talking about your, the person who's older than you. You know, so, so we've got to be careful about how we look at that. But, but basically, when you rebuke a pastor, you need to... Um, you need to See, what does that say there? 519. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So there's all sorts of reasons that someone could bring an accusation against a pastor. And and so if someone just brings one, you've got to be careful about accepting that as truth. Verses 20 through 25, uh, confronting sinning brothers, there's instruction for that. And that's really a service to the church, isn't it? And how do we care for sinning brothers? And then 
chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the service of, of, of Christian slaves and masters. Uh, Timothy was also to teach that slaves who have Christian masters, that they shouldn't abuse their commonality in Christ. So, in other words, if you have a slave in the church who has a Christian master, he can say, well, you know what? Hey, we're all equal in Christ, so I'm not going not gonna to work for you as hard as I used to. Um, we're, we're all Christians here. And Paul's saying, no. Instead, they should actually work harder because they should know that their, work, their world around them is watching them. And that, that means that it should motivate them to serve even, even harder their Christian masters than they did before. Then the end of chapter 6 is the service of Christ in good works. The gospel transforms people to produce godliness, but um, it's not meant as a means to gain followers and money. So instead, believers need to learn the principle of contentment. So that's where we see those famous verses about, you know, godliness with contentment is great gain. Not, you know, there are some who who desire to be rich and they fell into a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts, which plunge men into to um, perdition. Forget the other part, but but anyway, um, believers need to learn this principle of contentment, even if they're rich. Um, they need to learn this principle, verses 17 through 19. So a letter about selfless service. So a letter, a letter uh, about sound teaching, a letter about corporate integrity and church order, a letter about selfless service, and then it's a letter of motivation. And here, here I think is the theme that we see that the gospel doesn't end when we have understood it in our minds. The gospel actually changes us, doesn't it? It's not enough to just have an academic understanding. Jesus came to the earth. Uh, the Son of God came to the earth. His name is Jesus. He lived a perfect life, died, died a, a, as a perfect substitute for our sins, and he, he was raised from the dead. That's not enough for us to end that He's coming again, right? It's not enough for us to just know those facts. It ought to change us. And that's the point. It actually teaches us how to live in the church. And so here's what I think the theme of First Timothy is based on the, the clues that are in the text. The gospel motivates the church to demand sound teaching, corporate integrity, and selfless service. All right, so let's finish with uh, some principles to consider. Number one, the gospel shapes our church's culture. The gospel shapes our church's culture, or we could say the gospel ought to shape our church's culture. That the life and activity of our church ought to be uh, ought to be affected or shaped by the transforming power of the gospel. The the gospel is not meant for academic use only. It's meant to be lived out in our doctrine, in what we stand up against. We're not just kind of, you know, milk toast when it comes to other people making claims about what is true. No, we're going to stand up for what we know is true. We're going we're to defy those false teachers who even rise up from within our own midst. It's also going to uh, change the way that we think about integrity. And that was specifically about the qualifications that we have um, that are clear for both the pastor and the deacon. And then also, uh, the gospel affects how we serve each other. And the reality is um, that we're not going to get there without a faithful pastor. And the reason I say that is because Paul's writing this to a faithful pastor. Okay, he's not writing this to the church primarily. That would be more of a secondary audience. And we would kind of be more like the third, how would you say that, tertiary audience or something. But, um, but primarily it's written to Timothy. And Paul's saying, the church needs you. I'm, that's why I'm leaving you here. You are the faithful pastor that this church needs to get back on the right track. 
And so that's the second principle, I think, that we learned from Timothy, and that is our church needs a faithful pastor. This is what the, the text is all about. Paul wants Timothy to teach the congregation how to persevere in sound doctrine and good works. Isn't this consistent with what Jesus taught his disciples prior to his, his advent, or prior to his return to heaven? Um, he said, make converts of all nations in Matthew 28. Is that what he said? No. No, he said, build an empire for yourself. You are the disciples, so build an empire for yourselves and make the world see. No, that's not what he said. No, he said, create a social gathering where people have lots of activities and programs that they enjoy so that they can keep coming back. Is that what he said? No, he said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them, listen to this, to observe everything that I've commanded. So he's not saying, teach them everything I've commanded. He's saying, them teach them how to obey everything I've commanded. That's different, isn't it? A little bit more than just teaching the commandments. And so what Jesus was telling his disciples is similar to what Paul is saying here to Timothy. The church needs a faithful pastor who will teach them how to obey. And that's the job of church leaders today as well, is to make disciples by teaching them how to observe all that Christ commanded. Paul's not telling... Timothy, you know, transfer facts from your head to theirs. That's part of it, right? Sometimes we just don't understand things, and we need someone to tell us. We need someone to explain the Scriptures. But, but Paul's saying it's more than that. It's actually show them how to do it. That's why the integrity part is so important, isn't it? Because if we have people that we're putting up as leaders in our church, and they're living one way over here, and they're talking another way, what does that say about how much they really believe or what does that say about how the gospel really affects a person? Right? So we want to have integrity there, and we want to actually be able to learn from these leaders from their godly examples. But also we learn how to obey God's commandment by when, when leaders rebuke the false teachers, when, when leaders commend godly believers, when leaders major on the majors, right? They major on the important things. Timothy's job was to do this, to instruct the church in sound doctrine, corporate integrity, and selfless service. So let me give you two applications under this principle. First, pray that I will be a faithful pastor because I can't lead this church in my own power. I can't remain faithful in my own power. Okay, I, I need the strength that only God supplies. So pray that I will be a faithful pastor. Second, Hold me accountable. Make sure that I am a faithful pastor. Make sure that my life, here and away, matches up with what 1 Timothy 3 says I ought to be. Because if I'm unfaithful to my wife, if I'm unfaithful in leading my children at home, if I'm unfaithful in leading this church, if I become unfaithful in, in my commitment to Christ, and who's going to get rid of me if not you? You need to get rid of me if I become unfaithful. And you need to call another pastor into this place who will be faithful in his home, in the world, and who will be willing to be held accountable. Every church needs a faithful pastor. 
uh, third principle to consider. Pastoral leadership is not easy. Church leadership is demanding because it demands that that I must, on occasion, stand up against self-seeking bullies who, in many cases, disguise themselves as loving, caring kind of people. And that's never a fun thing to do. It requires cutting off people who are undeserving of the church's help. Think about chapter 5. How fun is that? For the pastor and deacons to say, you know what, this widow doesn't qualify. Or this widow should be seeking help somewhere else. The job of a pastor is to be faithful to God and to lead the church in faithfulness, but the immediate reward is most often not fame, most often not a big stage, or even a lot of recognition. Being a faithful pastor is very often a difficult job, and not only difficult, but very, very often misunderstood and mischaracterized. Faithful pastors can be easily demonized for taking a stand on a particular doctrine or practice and dismissed as, you know, that's kind of their pet doctrine. You know. It's not easy. Uh, so... So again, back to those two applications from before. Pray that I will be faithful and then hold me accountable. Finally, the Ephesian story doesn't end with 1 Timothy. You know, we kind of briefly walked through the story of, first, or of, of this Ephesus church. That, that it was started by probably somebody else other than Paul. Paul came along, strengthened it, was there for two or three years, then moved on, uh, established leaders before moving on, came back, saw some problems in it, left Timothy there to correct these problems. So what's the end of the story? As Paul Harvey used to say, what, what, what's the rest of the story? How did it all turn out? Did they revive? Did they stand their ground? Well, it appears that they at least survived because 30 years later, Jesus sends them a note through the pen of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. And they are criticized for losing their first love but they're also commended for their perseverance and their stand against false teachers. So we might have a lot to say negatively about them. You lost first love. But, but there's also much that the Savior himself commends. And his lampstand is still there. He still stands among them as a lampstand. You know, if they don't, they're going to be snuffed out, like he says to one of the other churches. But, but the point is, is that through that time, 30 years later, they had not apostatized. They were still working their way, struggling through the, the, the roughness and the difficulty of the Christian life. So there is some, something, to be, something to commend them for. And the story of Ambassador Baptist Church is a long history of God's faithfulness and the growth of believers as well. But our story does not end here. We have not arrived. We each have areas of improvement. We as a group have areas of improvement. We have greater strides that we can make towards godliness and contentment. Is that not true? How do you think Christ would evaluate our church today? And uh, I think maybe a good way to answer that is just by sticking with us here on Sunday afternoons, evenings, over the next 20 weeks, and we'll answer that question. How might we, how do we stand 
How, how could we be evaluated in relationship to this church at Ephesus? And so we'll take the next six months to look through this book and, and study it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this letter that was written at a time of crisis. And uh, Timothy had to go in and clean up a mess. And uh, Lord, the church of Jesus Christ today is not without its messes, not without its difficulties and, and, um, and struggles and conflicts, but we know that it is through much persecution, persecution and much tribulation that we will enter the kingdom of God. And, and sometimes, surprisingly even, persecution comes from even uh, our own church, from people that come and and, um, and rise up from our own church. And so help us, Lord, to be faithful with our responsibilities. For myself, that I would be a faithful pastor. For the deacons, that they would be faithful leaders. For everyone else to hold us accountable and to make sure that we're choosing the right kind of men for these positions. And Lord, until um, Jesus comes or until we pass away, may this church be faithful and even beyond for, for decades to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.